Denise is setting up for me for teaching aids. Uh, this is my Grandpa Wright's Bible, the Bible he preached out of. For He uh, grew up in Webster County and uh, preached all around southwest Missouri. And uh, this is my dad's Bible that he preached out of for most of his life until uh, around 75 when he got a New American Standard Bible. Went from the King James to New American. But it, it's good. This is my Bible here, one of the ones that I used to preach out of. And I was at fellowship before iPads came along. Oh, gosh. You ought to get back to the, iPad, to the actual Bible instead of this. From my earliest days, uh, the Bible was an integral part of my life. Uh, probably the very first book I was given that I remember as a child. And uh, I remember in Sunday school, we used to sing the B-I-B-L-E, as that's the book for me. Anybody else sing that at all? Stand Alone on the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. We started each morning in summer VBS Vacation Bible School with our hands over the heart, and we said the Pledge of Allegiance to the Bible. I pledge allegiance to the Bible, God's holy word, will make it a lamp to my feet, light it to my path, will hide its words in my heart that I may not sin against God. I was also the champion of sword drills. Anybody know what a sword drill is? It was not the pointy kind that would cut you, it was the book kind. We called the Bible the sword of the spirit, which as you think about it, is very militaristic view of spirituality and the Bible, isn't it? But basically what would happen is, and we did this, uh, I probably didn't start this until I was in uh, third grade, third or fourth grade, and did it all up through grade school. Didn't do it in junior high anymore, but the instructor, the Sunday school teacher, whoever was doing it, would have all the kids line up and we'd stand at attention. And then she would say, draw swords. We would do this. I do that because I'm right-handed. And we'd put our hand on top of the Bible. We couldn't put our thumb, couldn't cheat by putting our thumb over here. We had to do it like this. So she'd say, draw swords, and then she would give us a Bible reference, Matthew 6, 33. And if it got harder and harder, she'd go to the uh, minor prophets in the Hebrew scripture, Zephaniah or something like that. And uh, then she'd say, charge. And we had all raced to see who could get to that Bible verse first. And when we found it, we'd step up. And I always won. <laughs> I, I'm not kidding. Because second place for a preacher's kid in Bible drill just would not do at all. I had a reputation to uphold. And... Uh, Made mom and dad proud with that. You know, Bible stories were as much a part of my life as eating ice cream. It was a daily experience for both the Bible stories and the eating of the ice cream. I wanted to be as skilled as David with a slingshot. I wanted to be as brave as Daniel in the lion's den. 
And I learned that with enough faith, I could turn water into grape juice. That was the Baptist version of that story. We would sing songs about the Bible. Maybe you remember this one too. Uh, Forgive me for my bad singing voice. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, Jericho. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. And the walls came tumbling down. Then we'd sing this one too. The Lord said to Noah, there's going to be a floody, floody. So get the animals went in by twosie, twosie, twosies. It rained for 40 days and days and daisies. But then, as I got older, I later discovered that those cute little Bible story songs did not tell the whole story. It was kind of like a peekaboo book. You know, you read a book, and then one page says something, and then it says, you turn the page, it says peekaboo, and it presents kind of a surprising uh, bit of information. So you read the story of Joshua and the Battle of Jericho that we would sing to and march around the room while we would sing it. And you turn the page, peekaboo, genocide. We never read this part of the story when I was a kid. They annihilated with the sword everything that breathed in the city, including men and women, young and old, as well as the cattle, the sheep, and the donkeys. Every person in the villages of Canaan, newborn babies, senior citizens. Yeah. The song wasn't as cute anymore. Beneath that colorful illustration of Noah and the ark, and you may have had that on the wall of your child's bedroom, you have Noah and his family and all the smiling, happy animals. But peekaboo. What you really have is the violent destruction of all humanity. One of my favorite children's books is this book, Awkward Moments, Children's Bible. (laughs) You look at it real close, you'll see floating people, floating puppy dog, floating babies. Folks, Noah's Ark is not a children's story. It is gruesome. And singing the Arky Arky song and the Tuesdays Tuesdays song, when I got older and it was a shock of a peekaboo story, I never understood it as a kid, junior high and high school, when I'd read that rest of the passage. The story goes from Genesis 6, a couple chapters in, to Genesis. And uh, it said that God regretted making humanity. Okay, and I got to thinking, well, 
I've taught in the sermons that my dad preached and Sunday school teachers, junior high and high school, that God knows everything. Okay, if God knows everything, but he regretted making humanity, uh, didn't he see that coming? So those two bits of information didn't fit. Couldn't reconcile those in my mind. If God is all-knowing, why did he not see this coming? You know, if we read these stories in any other context, we would say they're horrible. They're, it's genocide. But it's in the Bible. God told the people to do it. So is it okay? Maybe not. A seven-year-old captured the angst of this very well when she asked, Mom, is God the bad guy or the good guy? At some point, we've got to grow up. We've got to get out of our childlike position and allow the Bible to be a peekaboo story and realize what's on the other page. And when we do, very likely our view of Scripture will change. So what is your view of the Bible? How would you fill in the blank? The Bible is blank. Here are some of the things that I was taught that the Bible is. It's an encyclopedia. It's an answer book. It's a guidebook, a recipe book. It's a rule book. It's truth downloaded from heaven. And then I heard one pastor in uh, Texas where Denise's family attends called it B-I-B-L-E, Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. Have you heard those? Those are all metaphors that I was taught to describe the Bible and metaphors that would describe how I should interact with the Bible. If I have a question, go to the Bible. If I want to know how to live my life, go to the Bible. If I want to know about God, go to the Bible. And that was kind of the all in all source. In fact, nothing outside of the Bible was really to be considered. Everything that was needed was right there in Scripture, which always kind of made me wonder as an adult, not as a kid, but as an adult, okay, if the Bible really came together and it really became available in the 1400s with the Gutenberg Press, I guess people just didn't know God before then. Yeah, the millions of years prior. So that changed my view of the Bible. Something else changed my view of the Bible. It was this. Confused? Read the directions. You can get a shirt that says that. It'll say confused, read the directions, and the directions are right there in the Bible. So if we look at the Bible as a rule book or a guidebook or a recipe book for life and we're wanting to build an ethical life based upon Scripture, well, we read this, Proverbs 26, 4. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or 
you yourself will be just like him. Okay. Don't answer a fool. That, that'll cut my conversation down a lot. <laughs> and from people talking to me, they'll think the same thing. So the lesson that we learn from that is don't answer a fool, right? Proverbs 26, 4, take a note of that. The very next verse is Proverbs 26, 5. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. <laughs> what am I supposed to do? Confused. The directions of Scripture are confusing. I discovered as I began to actually read the Bible that the Bible does not speak with one voice, but a diversity of voices who have different opinions on things. I don't know if you've done this or not, but you fast forward a little bit. There are a series of books out by evangelical people and who uh, recognize the diversity of opinions in Scripture. So you can read books like The Nature of Atonement, what Jesus did on the cross, supposedly, in that thinking. Four views. So people read the Bible about the Jesus dying on the cross, and there are at least four ways to understand that. I thought the Bible was supposed to be clear about that. If the Bible is supposed to be clear about that, there should be one view, but there's not. There's at least four views. Understanding four views of baptism, four views on hell. I thought the Bible was supposed to be clear. It's not so clear. Or there would be not be good people, all of them who are expressing and holding different views. Three views on the day of creation. Does that confuse you? Does it make you scratch your head? Does it make you wonder? Okay, maybe the Bible is not what I was taught as a kid. Does it bother you that it may not be what you were taught as a kid? Does it unsettle you a little bit? It certainly did me. So those are a couple of things that uh, led me to change my view of Scripture. And those are some things that I learned in high school in Southwest Baptist College and at Southwestern Seminary. But when I became a Southern Baptist pastor, I was expected to teach people those same metaphors that I learned as a kid. It was a rule book, a guidebook, a recipe book. And that's what I did until I could not do it any longer and be true to myself, be true to my own questions and my own searching. But the main driver for me in changing how I viewed the Bible is love. And this is what I mean by this. At the very heart of where I am right now and how I want to experience spirituality and how I want to define and see theology and Christianity 
is basically what John writes. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. So everything that I think about theologically and everything I read, whether it's in the scriptures or other sacred writings, I want to look at through the lens of love. As David Hayward, a great cartoonist, says, through these two individuals reading, one has the glasses of hate, one has the glasses of love, both reading the Bible. The hate glasses, this gives me permission to hate everybody. The love glasses, this challenges me to love everybody. Since it is very nature of God to love, I think it is upon me, this may not be where you are, that's okay. But I have got to the place, if God or since God is love, then I think I need to always wear the glasses of love. So that everything I read, I can read, I can spin it. You betcha. Everybody spins the Bible to fit what we already think. So I just want to spin the Bible in a way, how can this story, how can this verse help me love people better? So I have a choice of which glasses to wear. One of my favorite people is Rachel Held Evans. And listen and look at, see what she said. So very true, I think. The truth is you can bend Scripture to say just about anything you want it to say. You can bend it until it breaks. For those who count the Bible as sacred, interpretation is not a matter of whether to pick and choose, but how to pick and choose. We are all selective. We all wrestle with how to interpret and apply the Bible to our lives. We all go to the text looking for something, and we all have a tendency to find it. So, the question we have to ask ourselves is this. Are we reading with the prejudice of love, with Christ as our model, or are we reading with the prejudices of judgment and power and self-interest and greed? Are we seeking to enslave or liberate, burden or set free? So, let me give you an example. In Matthew's gospel, we read these words. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Later on, uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, where they were praying before the crucifixion, behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest when they were arresting Jesus and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place for all those who take up the sword will perish by the sword. So here's my dilemma. Maybe it's yours. Here, Jesus is a, a warrior of peace, not a person of violence. Put up the sword, Peter. But in the Hebrew scripture, we see God telling Israel to destroy the people who lived in the cities of Canaan. So it's the same Bible, the same subject, but two different perspectives. So which of those passages, those in Joshua or those in Matthew, look more like love? 
kind of obvious, isn't it? So do I discount the ones in Joshua? No. But as far as knowing how to apply things to my life and live my life and develop an ethic, I'm going to follow the words of Jesus and not the behavior of Joshua. There's another lesson I can learn through the story of Joshua. My dad preached on Joshua all the time, but I think he followed the ways of the rabbis. And as I've gotten older and begin to listen to Jewish rabbis explaining those stories of Joshua, very few of them, if any of them that I've read, take it literally. But all metaphorically. And that's how my dad always taught Joshua. As a metaphor. I wish he were alive again so I could ask him about, okay, did you actually believe it actually happened? Or did God put those in there just as a metaphor? So those lens of love help me to know how to read Scripture and how to apply the Scripture to my life. So what I'm understanding now is that the Bible is a library of books reflecting how people have understood God. So these biblical stories of of genocide and violence mirror how the ancient peoples saw their gods. So the story of the flood in, in Noah and uh, the, flo- the stories of the massacres of the people of Canaan uh, by the children of Israel were reflective and mirrored what was happening in the understanding of the other people. The children of Israel were an ancient people. And they were expressing in these stories the very same theology that other ancient cultures were expressing about their Bible. So this is where I am now. And you may just totally think, Philip, you're way off the rails on this. But you wouldn't be the first. And you will not be the last. And it's really okay. It'd be fun to talk with you about it. But my understanding of the scripture now is that the Bible is not a a handy handbook of God from A to Z. The Bible does not tell us what God is like. The Bible tells us how the people of of Israel understood God. I got that from my Southern Baptist Seminary professor. And it changed my life. And I hope it will, at least, you will allow that to be considered in your mind. Let's go back to the sword drill. A subtle lesson of that sword drill was this. The Bible can be used as a weapon. Let me give you an example. In the pre-dawn hours of May 26, 1637, an an army of English settlers attacked the Pequot village near the Mystic River in Connecticut, and they burned that village. And the people who were inhabiting that village were burned alive, men, women, and children. A few of them escaped only to be shot down 
by uh, Captain Mason's men. Well, there was another man there. He was a Puritan, a very strong religious man, a captain himself by the name of John Underhill. He wrote in his journal about that experience. He said, down fell men, women, and children. Should not Christians have more mercy and compassion? Yeah. But then he said this, but sometimes the scripture declareth women and children must perish with their parents. We had sufficient light from the word of God for our proceedings. The, the, the sufficient light that justified this massacre were these stories of violence, of genocide, the Bible's war stories. The thinking was this, since the children of Israel took the land by killing people who already lived on the land, we as Europeans can take the land by killing the people who are already on the land. Wow. Theology matters, doesn't it? And the Bible is still used as a weapon today. But this verse, we stab people. With that passage, we shred people apart. The Bible has been used, as we know, to enslave people, to oppress women, to marginalize and to judge the poor, and to condemn and exclude our LGBTQ plus siblings. David Hayward, in another cartoon, as Jesus looking in a man reading the Bible, be careful. You could hurt a lot of people with that. And it has been used. One of my favorite stories in movies is to kill a mockingbird and the character, Miss Maudie, who is a, an adult friend, a mentor to Scout, told Scout one day, sometimes the Bible in the hands of one man is worse than a whiskey bottle in the hands of another. Back in 2019, a Texas state senator declared in a tweet that gun ownership was a God-given right. Not a constitutional right, but a God-given right. I don't know where, they, don't know where he finds that. <laughs> Maybe it's in Dad's Bible. I don't know. So... Yeah, Alyssa Milano stepped in, and she sent out this on Twitter. Can someone cite which passage of the Bible God states it is a God-given right to own a gun? No. Well, the United States senator from Texas couldn't resist the fight. So he jumped in, and he sent to Alyssa this verse. If a thief is caught breaking in at night and has struck a fatal blow, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. But then the senator, a U.S. senator from Texas, admitted that verse 3 of chapter 22 says that if this scenario happens in the daytime, it is not self-defense, and the law does not allow that. Now, if the good senator from Texas would read the rest of Exodus 22, he would come upon this verse. 
Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Now, that's a verse maybe we should take literally. Yeah, that's not a bad one. So what is wrong with the senator's argument? To me, it is this. I don't see Jesus in the argument. And I don't see love in the argument. Jesus said that all of the law and the prophets, all of the Hebrew scripture hangs upon two commandments. You know what they are. Can you say them with me? Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, who's my neighbor? All the stories and the experiences of Jesus show us that the entire planet's our neighbor. Everybody is under the category of neighbor. And so when Jesus says all the law and the prophets hang on this, he's not saying that the law and the prophets are summarized by these two commands, but he says the law and the prophets, the aim of the entire Hebrew scripture is to love God, which is a Hebrew command, and to love your neighbor as yourself, which is also a Hebrew command. Jesus was a good Jewish man. And Jesus read the Hebrew scriptures with the purpose of gleaning from that motivation to love God and to love others. Make love your aim, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 14. So here's where I am. If I am not reading the Bible in a way that leads me toward love, then I think I'm reading it in the wrong way. Love led me away from a literal reading of Scripture. Think about this with me. A literal reading of Scripture never would have led to the abolition of slavery. A person who is a literalist, that is a person who takes the Scripture very literally and applies it very literally, where every verse has equal authority and equal weight, would have a hard time getting away from what Paul multiple times wrote, slaves obey your masters. And then he says this, with all respect, with all fear, with sincerity of heart, as you would to Christ. A person who takes the Bible literally cannot go to abolition, the position of abolition of slavery, when you consider Paul's verse. Love dictates that I not take the Bible literally. If I took it literally, I would have to be pro-slavery. I'm not condemning Scripture, and I'm not discouraging Scripture. I am encouraging us to read scripture, whether it's in the Hebrew scripture or the Christian scripture, with the eyes of love. Maybe those horrible war stories are not to be taken literally. Maybe Noah is not to be taken literally, but maybe metaphorically. What can I read of the, this story of Noah with the eyes of love that would motivate me to love better? It's a challenge. My encouragement to you is 
Ask yourself, with what lens am I reading Scripture? And remember this, you can know the Bible by heart, but not know the heart of it. And the heart of what we call the Bible, Old and New Testament, Hebrew and Christian Scripture, is, Jesus says, love God and love others as yourself.